Um, so my name is Amanda Callan Spen, and I'm here in my role as trustee on the board, responsible jointly with Lydia, who is beautifully dressed here, um, uh, for for the equality, diversity, and inclusivity um, strategies. Um, so this event is intended to explore the challenges and the questions associated with encouraging um, a, more, a more diverse membership and research output within the BSSH. Um, so I'll be opening the floor for questions from you guys um, at the end. Um, we're really keen to hear everybody's thoughts and ideas. Um, of course, uh, let's remember this is a safe space and we're going to be respectful to all. Um, we've got a brilliant panel, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, so we have Dr. Pauline Campbell at the end there, uh, who's the director of the University of Leicester Institute for Inclusivity in HE. He's also an award-winning, okay, <laughs> he's also an award-winning academic and Associate Professor of Race, Sport and Inclusion at the University of Leicester. His first monograph on the social history of race and local football in Leicester won the British Sociological Association's Philip Abrams Prize in 2017 and was shortlisted for the BSSH's Lord Aberdare Prize. Paul has published widely in the areas of race and sport and on inclusion and higher education. He's also led a number of cross-university race, equality and education projects and sports, supports a number of UK universities in, in addressing racial inequalities in their curricula and assessment processes. Paul is a University of Leicester Distinguished Teaching Fellow and he was awarded the National Teaching Fellow in 2022, both for his work on race, race inclusion in HE. Um, so, we also have Malcolm. Sorry, folks, I seem to have lost the power of reading. <laughs> uh, Malcolm McLean's a settler, in, a settler historian with a background in sociology and anthropology. He works in the Doctoral College at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, and maintains research affiliations with the University of Queensland, University of Gibraltar, and De Montfort University. His work focuses on sport in imperial and colonial settings with a focus on settler colonialism and, uh, okay, indigeneity. Is that right? Cool. And he's an editor of five collections of essays dealing with the philosophy of play. He's a former chair of BSSH, current vice president of ISHPES, and convenes Nash's e Equity, Diversity, Belonging, and Decolonization Coordinating Group. He's also a chair of the Labour Behind the Label Trust, where a current area of work focuses on clothing workers' rights in the UK, with a specific focus on Leicester. And as a hobby, he, de he definitely collects titles. <laughs> so, uh, Lydia, uh, Dr. Lydia Furs, Dr. Lydia graduating today from her PhD, which she completed last year, the thesis entitled Women in Rugby Union, A Social and Cultural History between 1880 and 2016. She recently taught the Sports Ethics and Governance module here at DMU and is a BSSH trustee. She's working on her first monograph by Moonlight after her day job as Education and Community Officer at the World Rugby Museum in Twickenham. She strongly supports inclusion in sport and stands firmly against the RFU's latest gender part participation policy. And finally, I feel that she almost needs no introduction. <laughs> uh, Raph Nicholson has been chair of the BSSH since 2019. Her work centres around her passion for gender equity in sport. She's a senior lecturer in sport and sustainability at Bournemouth University and the author of Ladies and Lords, a, a History of Women's Cricket in Britain, which was published by Peter Lang in 2019. She's also a freelance journalist who writes on contemporary women's cricket. So, yeah, we've seen some really amazing presentations uh, over the last couple of days, um, concentrating on sporting inequalities. 
but um, I think guys actually can we start with let's let's unpack that <laughs> um, how do we define equality diversity and inclusivity and and how do we feel about this coverall idiom um, perhaps we could start with Paul um, okay go thanks and um, first thanks for inviting me and thanks for everybody staying to to the end I think um, I suppose on it in, a, in a general way we'll, we can just describe equality, diversity and inclusivity in, in just kind of a, a situation where those from marginalised backgrounds don't have to work harder than their peers, in white peers in equitable uh, positions to get the same kinds of uh, access, privileges, opportunities, uh, visibility and, and kind of opportunities to kind of write who's included in canon. Um, as a catch-all term, I think it's problematic. I think it's problematic for a number of reasons. Um, when we think about inclusivity, particularly over the last 20 years, um, inclusion is something that can be achieved actually, particularly in organisations with very little inclusion taking place. So, for example, when we think of inclusivity, when we think of diversity, and, and I think particularly to um, I think my wife works in law and that's a really useful um, uh, kind of example. They claim that they've got real diversity because 50% of their workforce at a certain level are women. But actually when we break that down in the intersection, it's usually white women. There are no brown women. So when we say diversity, we can achieve diversity, and this is the same in the academy, and, and dare I say here, we can achieve inclusion by only including a, a, a very kind of small amount of people. Um, the other thing with this is, well, what does this look like? What does inclusion look like? You know, we use these terms like decolonizing, we use these terms like uh, a, a kind of, let's say, diversifying, but, but how do we measure that? Can we measure that simply by just the amount of people that we have? Well, we know that we can't, because actually the experience of being marginalised, the experience of coming from a marginalised background, um, is not captured in quantitative measurement. And, and just for an example, um, if we say that we've got 50% of women, and we haven't, um, in, in the academy, does that mean then that those women still aren't experiencing misogyny? still experiencing the same kinds of uh, opportunities and privileges, does that mean that they are not experiencing microaggressions? No, so we can't simply capture this just by having um, numerical um, 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 kind of parity. And, and so I think really the last thing that, that we need for me on this is we need to move away from these broad terms like inclusivity and need to speak about the communities or the areas that we want to identify. So if we want to speak to disability, then we need to say actually we will have interventions directed at that group or race. And even when we break race down, well actually because we know that certain minority ethnic groups have uneven levels of privilege. So if we need to focus on, for example, domicile South Asian uh, men or women from the Islamic community, then we need to be much more specific. Because only then, when we have that forensicity, can we re can we kind of really respond to the, the issues. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How, what do you think about that, man? Um, I would, I've, I've written a whole bunch of stuff down because I know if I don't write a bunch of stuff down, I keep talking, <laughs> and, and, and there's lots of. Um, um, I want to start with Paul's initial de 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 definition there, which I think works. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty clear sense of, of, of what we're looking at, but at the same time, it's intensely problematic. Not because of the way you've described it or, or, or defined it, but because of the way it, it, it because of the way it's used. And I think I'm sufficiently Wittgensteinian to know that the meaning of a symbol um, lies in its use. Uh, and, and the problem that I have. The, 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 the problematic sense with, with, with those two terms that I have is, is, is fourfold, three of which are closely in, in, in interrelated, and I think they reflect on some of the things that, or spin off some of the things that Paul said there. Firstly, they prioritise the, the institution over the individual or the group. 
um, and, uh, and, and, and that group's agency. So when we're talking about in inclusion, we're talking about the goals of some kind of abstract body. Um, and in doing so, they sideline objectives such as equal opportunities, such as social justice, such as redistributive justice, and they reduce those questions to presence or recognition. Um, so that's, that's the three in, in, interrelated parts of it. The other real problem that I have with them is, is that they've become really instrumentalised and validated as tools to enhance corporate standing, which is the spin-offs of the, the stuff around, around the institution. So read your institutional strategic plans at times and see how they link things like diversity and inclusion to the sorts of, um, I guess, corporate goals that are rolled into the ref and a whole bunch of those kinds of questions. So, so I, I think I'm unpacking that, and, and, and I guess I'm reflecting some of the things that Paul said as well, that, that these things can be achieved without changing the cultures. That's, 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 the, real, that's the real problem that I have with them. And it's, uh, but I'm not saying that things like recognition aren't important. I'm not saying that, but, 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 we're not going to achieve things if we don't find ourselves focusing on what I think is three particular problems. And I, I want to admit here that I'm riffing off some work by uh, uh, Tara McAllister and some of her um, uh, colleagues have done some really good work on early career researchers and STEM subjects of late and uh, some, some others from my p p p part of the world as well as you know, Sarah Ahmed and Deborah Get Gabrielle and uh, a bunch of the folks whose names we know. But I think there are three key things here. And there's a problem about rewarding endemic institutional habits that sustain those, those corporate structures of power. Um, and there's also a problem around the effects of institutional habits that continue to make people who are minoritised by those structures of power into strangers and space invaders in the institutions that we're talking about. I've specifically nicked Strangers and Space Invaders from Tara McAllister's work there. It's a really nice image for us to think about <coughs> when, we're, when, we're, when, we're, when we're looking at the position of minoritised peoples. And the third is the sorts of just naturalised institutional habits that we have that are so naturalised that most of us probably aren't aware of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of really challenging reflexivity that I think is involved here as, as we as as we as we try to grapple with these three terms of EDI. Now on balance I think because we're talking about an institution here, I'm probably okay with diversity as a term, you know, as a as, as a concept. But what I want us to think about and something that the that would be quite useful as an organization to try and unpack and I'm probably channeling some of the discussions that we're having in in, in, in Nash here is what happens if we talk about belonging? rather than inclusivity? And how does that change the kinds of ways that we might think about what we have to do and how, 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 we, how we might have to reorganise ourselves and shift our practice to build a, a culture of belonging rather than a culture of inclusion? Yeah. And I'll stop there because okay. I could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that, um, the switch, because I've been playing over in my mind how do we turn inclusivity or inclusion into the question am I included and putting any individual into that question is that individual included and it's about that sense of belonging so that's a really nice way of reframing it um, I agree with you that diversity is a good starting point I think it's just important as Paul pointed out that diversity is not a tick box exercise and it's a starting point diversity doesn't work without the follow-up actions and the senses that equality and inclusion are meant to kind of be bringing around because I feel like diversity was the first term that came around into corporate language and then it was DNI and EDI is, is the new evolution of that. In terms of equality, I mean, it, it's just really simple, but equality is not equity. And, <laughs> you know, that's, it's just, um, it needs more than equality because equality is where corporations and institutions can very easily start to say, well, it doesn't seem fair to put all of this work into including that small group who are the 3%, the 1%, the 0.5% of the population. But ultimately, we need to centre that idea of belonging is, is the most important one. So yeah, as a, 
as a term, it's not great. I'm very cautious about it in terms of how corporations use it, but I think it's a really useful starting point. And if we can incorporate the kind of questions that we come to when we start to put that EDI lens on things, I think it can be helpful at this stage. Yeah, we've all got concerns about it, but I maybe haven't got any answers to go further on yeah. that at the moment. Yeah, I agree about the about what Malcolm said about belonging. Um, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about what I was going to say for this question in the context of BSSH and in the context of my first BSSH that I attended, which I think was 2010, 2011, something like that, um, and, and did I feel like I belonged? Mm -hmm. um, and on the one hand, I did feel like I belonged. I've always felt, coming to BSSH, that, it's, that there is that sense of inclusion, that there is that sense of collegiality, um, and there were people there um, who were, you know, were very generous to me. Um, but there were also people there who looked like me. There was, you know, I, sorry, I'm going to pick people up. I specifically remember having a conversation with Carol. I remember talking to Fiona. Um, I remember talking to Stacey Pope. Um, and that's because of um, the privilege that I carried at that conference um, of being, um, of course, I was a woman, so I was in a minority, but I was also a white woman. Uh, and a middle class woman um, and was able to uh, enter that context um, in a kind of, uh, and, and I have to recognise that. Um, so I think that for me, um, what, we're, what we're trying to get to is a place where everyone can come into the BSSH conference and feel the way I felt at that first conference, um, whoever they are, um, whatever uh, categories they fall into. And I don't think that we're there yet. Um, and so I think uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's where that's where we need to that's where we need to get to. And the other thing that I was going to say, uh, which probably links to what we're going to talk about, is about the uh, the papers that were given at that first conference. Um, and I didn't see myself represented in the content of what was being discussed in terms of the historical um, research that was being done. Um, and I think that that is changing from the perspective of kind of feminist sports history. Um, but as we've heard the last couple of days, um, we are. You know, there are so many. Um, there are so many of these areas. Um, you know, Black British sports history is. Um, that you know, there's so little that's been done, and so um, you know that is that is also an issue. Yeah, and I think I think Paul's point about the kind of intersectional categories. You you can't you can't necessarily categorise anyone because uh, everyone is is a is is a mixture of things, as you say, white middle class woman um, and, and white women and black women it, we're, we're all intersectional in a, in a way I think and, and we need to think about that and not just go okay this group can do this and you know think about it in that way so why is it important for the BSSH to be more inclusive uh, and what impact can that have on a more representative output within sports history and the broader historiography um, Lydia? Well, I think everybody in this room is in agreement that it is very important for BSSH to continue to be um, more diverse, more inclusive, and to and that, that will have an impact on the content of the work that we are looking at because ultimately it comes from an intersectional perspective, but it's positionality. And I think um, Ramachandra touched on it earlier in his keynote in the fact that um, his work, A Corner of a Foreign Field, doesn't um, broach onto gender. And he admitted that that came from his positionality and his perspective on cricket. Whereas I know that you know there have been uh, papers put forward, um, I'm thinking uh, a couple of years ago, and a paper was put forward about cricket that didn't touch on gender at all and raps in the room and says, why is there no gender <laughs> in this paper? It seems evident to different people to approach different things from different perspectives and until we are all fully really questioning our own perspectives and our own positionalities we're not going to notice the gaps in our knowledge and first of all recognizing our own positionalities our own areas of privilege and our own areas of weakness and taking the opportunity to improve those is great but inviting in those voices when we say I actually don't know very much about that. I'm going to go find that field of scholarship because often it does exist and we're just maybe not 
touching on it and that's one of my personal weaknesses that I'm working on the next stage of I didn't include enough about race and indigeneity in my own PhD project which um, in the way that I defended it it covered 140 years it was a really big project focusing mostly on gender and sexuality um, but race is an important part of that story of any intersectional players and that's something that needs to go into the rewrite of it for my monograph so that's what I'm working on next. So ultimately um, it, what it comes down to is um, it means better history. Yeah. Um, it's, it's as simple as that isn't it? There are so many huge gaps in sports history at the moment um, and that is a reflection of um, who is working in the field, um, who feels able to work in the field um, and uh, yeah, so if, you know, if we're asking uh, why is it important to have a more inclusive discipline and a more inclusive society, it's, it's better history. Um, it also, from a, just from a purely kind of society perspective, it means the society will be better run because we know that diversity means better governance. I mean, that's what my whole research at the moment is, is all about. Um, so it's, um, yeah, there's, there's um, kind of huge advantages um, even if we do, even if we leave the ethics completely to one side there's huge advantages to the society and to um, and to kind of history as a discipline yeah okay. we talked about the, the we, we talked about these 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 questions I um, I found myself 10 minutes after we'd finished the conversation <laughs> worrying about both the words inclusive and representative yeah. as we as we yeah. phrase these questions and I realized I that they were the issues for me. I realised that the issues for me were quick, quick, quick questions of justice and what does what does what does a just sports history look 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 like? And I, I think there's there, there are two aspects of that for me. First is that the two areas that that we engage sport and history and put them together into sport history as well, and their dominant forms are agents of power, but they sustain the kinds of exclusions that we're expressing concern about at, 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 at the moment. Um, and without a greater sense of belonging, the kind of diversity of historical analyses that we're looking for, I think, is only really going to sustain those, those exclusions. It's not going to challenge them. It's, the, it's, not going to, it's not going to push the limits of them. And there are, there are a couple of things to note there. The first is, I think, many of us, and um, here is the kind of token late middle-aged white middle-class or lo lower middle-class bloke. Um, uh, some of us might recognise structural challenges to that power, but we're unlikely, and, and the exclusion that it brings about, but we're much less likely to recognise some of the more subtle moments of resistance and some of the more mundane challenges because we don't have the abilities to read the cultural codes that allows us to even see those things. If you've not read James C. Scott's Domination and the Art of, of Resistance, which is now 30 years old, it's fantastic. Um, but it's the epigram to that that I keep coming back to, which is attributed in the book as an Ethiopian proverb, which says, when the great lord passes, the wise pe pe peasant bows deeply and farts quietly. <laughs> Now, for some of us, who, for, for whom the cultural world that the systems of power sustain is naturalised, we're not even going to know to listen for the fart. So we'd become really surprised if we ever smell it. And so we've, the, the, there's, this, there's this sense of the, 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 the narrowness of the perspective that we have means that we miss a whole bunch of the really subtle, nuanced, detailed things that people who are minoritised and marginalised play out in everyday life. So that's part of the reason why. The other part of the reason why for me is that actually the value of our work doesn't lie in us understanding what we're talking about. We're relatively, the people in this room are relatively irrelevant in assessing the value of our work. The value of our work lies in the people and in, in, in getting messages to, to the people who don't make it into this room. And I guess that's some of the stuff that Gail was talking about y y y y yesterday with the, with, the, with, the, with the graphic novels of reaching out to different audiences and telling stories in different ways. Now, if we're not even recognising that those stories exist because we don't have the cultural codes to read them, we're not going to tell the stories 
in a way, let alone tell them in a way that the people who aren't making it into this room are going to hear. So to my mind, it's that historiographical question that's the really important one, partly because I think we're kind of trapped in a form of modernity that doesn't even recognise the methodological exclusions that are woven in, into, our, in, in, into, our, into our work. And many of you know I get a bit antsy about the nationalism of, 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 of historical research. Um, and then it's Can I just move on to Paul for a second? Yeah. Can I just have one, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Just, yeah. just, 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 just one moment. And it's 2018 report, um, Race, Ethnicity, Equality in UK History. The Royal Historical Society noted that 40% of UK university history departments were own country researchers and assessed that as comparatively high in comparison to other, 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 other states like us. The, I would be surprised if there was more than half a dozen of us in this room who didn't classify ourselves as own country researchers in this, in this, in this field. And the kind of narrowness and the constraints that that brings to our work is also part of the problem. That when we're talking about those issues around diversity and, and those kinds of questions, it's that much bigger historiographical question and the sorts of things that we drive ourselves to ask questions about and the comparative insight and knowledge that comes from that and now I will stop and shut up. <laughs> no, no, and that similarly I kind of echo um, what everybody's said here but I'm going to give you the answer that, that I would give in, in my director role because in that role I can't always have the luxury of talking in terms of conceptual ideas but more in the realm of pragmatism and so I think really, so one thing I will say, please ask me this question about, look, we all, all of us in this room write about race all the time. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that, but I suppose so, look, this isn't a moral question, this is pragmatic. I'm going, uh, Rob's fantastic talk, a couple of points in there, he mentions what is Englishness? Um, this is about ordinary people. Who's what is Englishness? Who are those ordinary people? What are those ordinary people? Because I don't know how many people in this room, when he said that, for me, I felt that wasn't me. So, and this isn't a criticism, but it's who that work speaks to and who that work doesn't speak to. So I think the biggest compliment I can give the work of people like you know, Dick and, and I'm, I'm, you know, Dick Holt, I'm, I'm, I'm biased because he was my supervisor and, and you know, um, but, you know, Dick Holt, John Williams' oral history of Highfield Rangers, Janelle Joseph's Cricket in Canada, is that this body of work, when you read it, um, it always seems like you're, you're reading the, the seemingly obvious or the seemingly familiar. Um, yep. And it's always obvious or familiar after you've read it and you find yourself saying, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I write that? Um, and, but, but what is obvious isn't obvious. It's falsely obvious. What is obvious is dependent on your biography, your positionality, the time, the context, and, and particularly who's reading. And so what we notice as obvious or not obvious is um, completely dependent on you know, what us sociologists would call epistemological proximity, but basically, in effect, um, how that work, how close that work is to our lived reality. Um, and so when I read something, I read, read the work and I think, actually, do you know what, that was brilliant. You know, Dick Holt's work on sociability and Malsite's sociability was brilliant, but in dialogue with that, I'm then thinking, but that didn't quite speak to my sociability. And that's what diversifying the field does for us in terms of an academy. Yep. It enables those moments that aren't obvious to some, yep. um, for those that it's obvious to, to be able to contribute. Now, it's not suggesting that this is impossible. It's not impossible for me not to empathise or to kind of think of those spaces that are missing, but it doesn't come as naturally and as instantly and as effort, effortlessly, and also, I might add, as, as authentically. 
Um, so, ultimately then, <laughs> a sport history like lots of the uh, disciplines are, are wrestling with kind of racial inclusion, um, and for many, this is about pluralizing the canon. So for us then, um, to pluralize that canon, you know, this diversity is the key. Having a diverse uh, set of authors, having people that authentically can speak to those realities, whether that's able-bodiedness, whether that's race, whether that's sexuality, that enables us to meaningfully reach those kind of new frontiers of sport history that without it just remain beyond the scope of, of the literature. So thus, going back to that original point which Rob touched on, well, whose history? Well, it's, never, it's not going to be everyone's history. It's just going to be the history of those people within the within these spaces. So if we want history to be um, everybody's history and to have a holistic historiography, then we need to diversify the, uh, the, the, the academy. Yeah. So, brings us to what are these challenges and questions that we need to address when creating the new policies and strategies to, to, to come to this position where we have this inclusive uh, Some of this is going to be really obvious, but uh, probably needs to be said anyway. Uh, why don't we have more non-white BSSH members? Um, where has BSSH been intentionally, structurally uh, uninclusive and racist? Um, how can we do more to support those in our membership from um, these different minority groups? And I think a big challenge is how we move beyond talking and into doing. Um, we're also obviously up against huge, not just, you know, these challenges aren't unique to BSSH, there are huge societal challenges, um, you know, a vastly under-representation under of, um, I know that some people find BAME problematic as a term, but for want of a better one, BAME students in the postgraduate population in the UK due to a lack of access to kind of financial and economic capital, um, we as a, as a society are quite small. Um, we have some money, but we don't. We can't. We're working within these within these constraints. Um, so I think that's a challenge. Um, we have challenges with um, getting people to come forward and be on the uh, board of trustees um, who are from um, kind of different groups. And um, we, you know, we everyone who was at the AGM yesterday will be aware we generally have as many candidates for trustee positions as we have um, kind of places for as we have positions we don't have a surface of people coming forward who we're who we're rejecting um and we're you know everyone who serves on the board of trustees and is trying to engage in this work um we're volunteers um we're you know we're absorbed in um our in our uh, other work there are constraints on our time on the time and resources that are available to us um and therefore i think a lot of the um it's it's tough uh it's tough to know how we do that, how we do that work of moving beyond talking, as we're doing here, into doing. And I think that that's something that I found very frustrating over the last three years. Yeah, yeah. Paul? Um, yeah, and look, this is hard work. It really is. You know, I think we need to be honest. And, and often it's not through kinds, of, it's not through some, you know, we're not sitting around a table thinking of ways in which we can marginalise certain people in dev devilish ways. Um, so, so, so kind of that being said, I, I just kind of think of maybe four takeaway points. I think strategically we need to think about kind of um, who are we specifically addressing. 
I think these kind of catch-all attempts are far too large and unmanageable. Yeah. I think we kind of need to be much more kind of specific in who we want to speak to, and you know, and encourage that, particularly in terms of you know our calls or so forth. We particularly welcome from or people in these kinds of areas in terms of their research. Um, understanding what it is that we're trying to achieve. Because often we do lots of really good things, but we don't even know kind of what we're trying to get from them. So we don't know how to kind of measure. So, so in effect, what is it that we're trying to achieve and then move backwards from there? If we're moving, if we want kind of more in the pipeline, if we want more people at governance, if we want more people in the membership, if we want people to feel differently within that space. Um, and then we need to think about how do we measure this? Can we measure this in the mechanisms that we've got? Are we, can we judge this solely on the amount of bums on seats or so forth? So again, we need to make sure that how we're measuring it is fit for purpose. Um, and really that will then enable, or I suppose the, the last point is how do we then move from praxis to practice? And that's like a bit of a sort of, you know, sounds like a, a, a kind of module title. Um, but, but actually, you know, really thinking about, okay, what, what does this mean at the ground level? What does this mean? Does this mean that we need more special, more special editions? Does this mean that we need... So, so really kind of getting a clear-eyed sense of where we want to get to and then work backwards from that as opposed to starting from this really lofty position because actually, you know, it, it almost becomes like Brexit means everything and nothing and, you know, it means something different for every person. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's the problem with um, measuring diversity on a tick box exercise because it, yeah, it just doesn't play out fully in, in practice, does it? And just need to, that there are many problems, but asking more people from diverse minoritized backgrounds to come forward and be part of the board doesn't work because we're a voluntary board. And, you know, that's, putting more EDI labour on people who are already minoritised and already facing barriers to accessing the institutions and it's just another level of people being asked to do that because they're expected to do that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really problematic so it's, you know, it's really nice to be thinking about more targeted solutions and I think um, what's interesting, I guess, is one that we came up with for this year was a childcare bursary, yep. um, which um, I thought was a really positive step forward to making sure that that was accessible and there wasn't any barriers around it being only for um, people with children of a certain age or any particular, you know, mothers only or, or fathers only, anything like that. Um, we made it as open as possible, but it hasn't actually been used this year. So that is available for anybody who needs it in the future, but is, does that mean that we are, there is a barrier to people working in this industry who could be here today, who might have wanted to make use of that bursary, but there was something else that stopped them getting here. And that's just one small example. So there's little things that we're making the right moves towards, but there's way more target groups that we can start to look towards and work really positively to. I have to go, but I'm sure what you're going to do is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the things that we know about this area of work is that recruiting more currently minoritised peoples to structures that are excluding them is, is most likely to produce turnover rather than change. And you, and you, I, I suspect all see that in your workplaces. Um, and I guess the other, so, so that, that's my first note there. So, so simply recruiting more people is not is is not the answer. Um, I think the second thing that I note there is that quite a lot of us are institutionalised in quite particular ways, and we find ourselves responding in ways that are quite managerialist. And there has been some quite interesting work done in, in our field in the last in the last wee, wee, wee while that raises some quite useful issues, but it's it's pretty managerialist. It's pretty it's 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 pretty much about how do we how do we refine what we currently do rather than transform what we currently do. And I think that 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 tra that tra transformations. 
for me there are I hesitate to use the word measures, but I'm going to use the word measures. There, there are three ways of making some judgments about how successful we're being as a society in achieving this kind of work. The first is, who comes back to this conference? Not who comes the first time, but who comes back? Because that's the sense of feeling, feeling welcomed. That's the first one. I think the second thing is, what are we publishing? And uh, um, there is, uh, can I talk about this? Yeah. Matt's done some work at the moment that will be coming out in the, in the, in the 40th, 40th issue, uh, 40th an anniversary issue that looks at what we've published in the journal and what we've, publi and, and what we've done in, 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 in conferences here that uh, points to some things about what we think of as sport and what we don't do as sport. And the gaps are enormous. The kind, even even just in terms of the subjects that we're exploring, let alone some of these some of some of these other questions. And so the third spin-off from that is what's the kinds of transformations that are taking place in the historiography and in the subject area? And that's the one that's the least measurable of those three. And that's where we're that, that's where that's where we're into those kinds of ethical, moral, and political judgments. And to wrap up, I just want to there's there's, there's a paper I read. A couple of years back, there's possibly the, the best sports history, the, 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 one of the most interesting sports history papers I've written about the last five years. It was written by Carly Adams and Daryl Aoki from uh, Lethbridge in Canada. And they look at curling amongst Japanese Canadians in southern Alberta, which sounds this horribly specialist, tiny little, tiny little topic. But Japanese Canadians live in southern Alberta because they were forcibly relocated from the west coast during the Second World War because they were classified as enemy aliens and therefore dangerous. And, and what, what Daryl and Carly do in this paper is they tell this fantastic ethnic cultural history of southern Alberta and the way in which curling becomes appropriated into Japanese Canadian life as a way of maintaining intra and intergenerational communities and, and relationships. This didn't come out of a sports history project. This came out of a, Nise, a, a, a project looking at oral histories of Nisei communities in southern Alberta, but it's published in IHHS. Now, Carly's a sports historian, so, but so it's not surprising that it's published there. But there's one of those places that I think, here's a paper that does a whole bunch of really interesting, quite subtle things. It's oral history based, there's subtle methodological characteristics that, that are that are woven into it. And I think this is, if that's the kind of step down the path that we might be able to take to start to develop an historiography that tells more complex and nuanced and subtle stories so that people other than folks like us can be recognised in them, then that's the kinds of steps that we should be looking to take. And, and, and I don't know how we start to get there, but that's the, that's the kinds of kinds of things that I look to see to say, yeah, we're starting to shift in really interesting ways. Mm. So, yeah, and on that note, I think that, let's open it up. Can I just add one thing? Uh, one thing, just to, to add to what Malcolm was saying, um, um, and we could kind of maybe get into this, um, just employing diversity, um, I, I don't want people to come away from that saying, well, actually, we don't need to employ, no. employ diversity. I think what we mean is, is or it's not to put words in your mouth, sorry, is that actually employing people from non-traditional communities without support Absolutely. Yeah. is problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So just chucking somebody in and saying, get on with it, yeah. but actually mentoring, helping support them when they're in post is the add-on to just kind of... Diversifying, and, and, and when we say diversifying, you know, it it is intersected with class and race. So, so you, you know, and and I know I'm being recorded here, so I'll probably go on the um, government blacklist. <laughs> but you know, what what we've seen in government is that you know you can have diversity of melanin, yeah. but not necessarily diversity in attitude and Absolutely. perception and and kind of position. So. It's not just simply enough to say, actually, well, we've got X, and we just carry on because they're part of the hegemon. Yeah. 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 Did you want to? No, no, <laughs> okay. So, oh, look at this. 
Yay! Yay! <laughs> uh, so the first hand I saw was over there. Um, thanks very much. I, um, just on the last thing you mentioned there, Malcolm, and there's somewhat difficult to say. Uh, um, there's a small analogy to the way Australian historians have understood Chinese and race uh, with the white slave policy coming through. And in 1985, there was an excellent paper that taught people to stop looking at the Chinese, stop talking about them, but to start giving them a voice. Yes. And I think this is important when you're looking at, at, at trying to bring people in, um, especially in specialised areas. I'm not, not trying to compartmentalise this, and, but I think there's a more in sport history a need to give people a voice. Yeah. Um, there was a, a, a paper by Steve yesterday uh, about his grandmother, where he was he was giving his grandmother a voice within the within the whole idea of of women's football in the in the 1920s. So, so I think if you extend that into race, if if and into the the, the main circular model, then. I believe that could be a good step forward, especially, I mean, I'm not talking about reorganizing the curriculum for undergraduate, but when you're looking more in the postgraduate area, and what we see as those people who will continue to come to, or be members of BSSH and, and come to conferences, then this, I feel, is an important step that yeah. we could look at going forward. There's a lovely line in a recent essay um, about uh, Indigeneity in, in history, not in sports history, but that, 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 where, the, where the author says something along the lines of um, making sure that there's that she reflects on and acts on her responsibility both to the people that she's writing about and those who have come after them. And it's a really nice recognition that when we're talking about folks in the past, we're also talking about the way their descendants have been shaped and framed. And I think that's, a, that's, that's, that's the other part of giving voice to it there, that actually it starts to recognise the, the, the livingness of the historical experiences that, 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 we're, that we're talking about. Yeah. Can I just, okay. can I just add to that? Yeah, oh, um, I think I think the flip side of that is, and it's the point I raised in my question, we all write about race. Yeah. We just don't say it. Yeah. Yeah. So if we put white um, sporting cultures, um, sport and the white British, then we would probably become much more comfortable about not seeing race as something that is the the activity of those people of colour, but actually the activities of all of us. Yeah. And I think that re requires a reflection in a way that when I'm writing my sport, the recent article that I wrote and I got some proofs back, and I, I really annoyed the editor because it said um, FIFA, racing FIFA football, and it reflects football, and it reflects, and in the end I was like, actually, no, it reflects men's football mm -hmm. because that's what it is. So if we kind of are just kind of much more reflexive on, and it doesn't mean that there's no there's a problem with it. But if we're much more reflexive and saying actually no, this speaks to a particular white identity, and and when we talk, and, and I don't want to get into the kind of politics of indi indigenous communities versus those that have come in, but but I think that will help us really kind of also see just how absent other histories are if we had to recognise the amount of times when we're talking about particular forms. Uh, of, of white sporting realities. Yeah. yeah. I had a question. This is mainly for Paul, although I suppose Brown can uh, other things that you mentioned, I think, address this question. This is more pragmatic. I'm just curious, how does practically the process of highlighting specificity get initiated within organizations or administrations? And as a, as a follow-up, are there any evidence methods that show success in terms of broadening the conversation so that those groups of individuals want to participate? Not that we're 
reaching out to them is that they feel drawn to us yeah. as sort of agents of their own ability. Okay, so um, if I go backwards first, so about the kind of evaluation and the shameless plug for uh, ULI, the institute, um, that's kind of, we're doing a lot of work around the kind of effectiveness or efficacy of interventions, particularly in relation to curricula and in relation to, to kind of assessments. So there is a growing body of uh, evaluative research um, on interventions, but, but not much. What we found so far is that pluralizing curricula increases senses of belonging, but not necessarily uh, award performance, uh, assessment performance, because students can be really engaged, or let me rephrase that, disengaged in their curricula, but know the business of how to write an essay and still kind of do, do well. Um, sorry, the, the first part of the question was that for any, and to be honest, sorry, how do you identify that? Well, that's the priorities of, of any given panel. You know, you can't do everything at once, so you might then say, okay, what is our target group? Have a rationale for that, and then kind of aim at that problem. What is your most urgent group? You know, in, in a way that, sorry. sorry. No, no, go for it. I think there's sometimes there can be a problem of, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. Like, how do I recognize a group if I don't yeah. know that group exists? For sure, for sure. And, and I think in that way, you kind of, you know, like with, with BSSH, they, they've got a kind of panel, they, they often reach out to people outside of that. Um, you can see in kind of demographics who's coming back, who do we want to particularly speak to. And again, it's down to the individual organization, what they see as their priorities. Mm -hmm. That can be driven by wider social issues or, or whatever else. But I just think that actually, you know, it, so for example, we're, we're driving, we're looking at the race award gap because that aligns with universities' priorities. And, but, but equally, it could be, uh, you know, if we went back 10 years, it, it could be kind of women because of the Athena Swan or, you know, kind of disability and, and so forth. So I, I don't think you have to do everything all at once, but actually just kind of being, identify who is your kind of urgent target group. trying to achieve and then mm -hmm. planning how you're going to achieve that. But when I, I work for a charity called Communication Matters, which um, is all about augmentative and alternative communication, so those are the people who have, uh, you know, uh, are using aids to communicate and, um, you know, they sometimes, sometimes have uh, intellectual impairments, but not necessarily. And um, when I joined them, they just had some funding and they tried to do a project to get a young person who AAC uh, to go on board, and it hasn't it hasn't actually worked. But I think I think what I what I got from that is that you, you need to be quite creative and you need to put a uh, system support systems in place. I mean they do I think they do now have someone who uses AAC on the board. Um, but also I was I was managing a research project and they had um, I had some advisory group which was made up of academics mainly. Um, but it was really important that there was representation of you know, someone who, who used AAC. And, and the person who'd written the bid had insisted that the, you know, that the money went in to pay that person a, you know, a, a, a payment, an extra-age payment, so that they could come. And obviously, it covered the cost of them and their personal assistance. And I, I think that was, you know, and also we got, you know, we had other involvement as well from people. In fact, the, res the researcher, the lead researcher at MMU, uh, had um, someone who used AAC working with her as a co-researcher. So I just think it's um, it's about being a bit creative and, and also accepting that sometimes things might not actually work. But you know that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. And, 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 and sort of obviously with them, with the charity, they, they kind of knew their constituent group very well that they wanted to uh, to get on board. But I still think that sort of model could work. SSH, but like Paul said, I think you know we can't actually go for you know you can't just say everyone you know you've got you actually need to be more specific. Yeah, I think we've got time for one more point. 
So I think, I think uh, we take from that that, um, uh, you know, Matt, yes, oh, of course. Um, so there was one thing that I think, sorry, um, and I'm sorry to hijack this, but particularly those of us um, who are involved in developing courses and, and kind of thinking about this pipeline. Much, much of inclusion is often driven by individuals. So we have somebody who's really passionate about it, they leave, mm. and then it kind of peaks and it troughs and it disappears, and it depends on the whim of the next person. So if you can bake inclusion into the structure, now whether that is a curriculum, so for example, you know, a module or modules, a couple of modules on the history of disability in sport, or the module of, you know, we're kind of more comfortable with gender, maybe, with some of our modules. But actually, when you're the, if that's in your curricula, when you're advertising, that means you have to speak to that specialism. And chances are, people from those realities will be doing that research. Likewise, students will see, will see that. You know, the best advice I ever had was, do the research that you know. So, you know, in our courses, we know that kind of modules where gender is foregrounded, usually kind of, uh, you know, uh, our female students gravitate to those. Um, so, so I think there's kinds of ways in which we can, re and, and if so, for example, if you're doing a special edition, not just kind of just race that might, you know, but, but kind of think about kind of, you know, Dick pointed to urban history, but urban history particularly thinking about these kinds of issues, you know, space, race, community, so forth. So again, there's ways in which we can bake this into the, our activities, so it means that it's not just dependent on who happens to be constituting that panel, or it's not who's leading that department, but actually we have a kind of, a, a more kind of uh, legacy of, of change, which it goes beyond any one individual. Yeah, I can't top that. So, on that note, <laughs> um, thank you so much to all of our panel. Um, and
We'll pass over to the closing remarks. Oh.